You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Prove yourself wrong. Your brain isn't always right. Life is inherently risky. There's no guarantee. Our logic gets flawed. We make up all of these rules in life about what's going to keep us safe and how to stay safe. If you listen to your brain, you'll sell yourself short in life. I thought my mission in life was to teach other people to be mentally strong. And I didn't realize how much I was going to need mental strength. My husband Lincoln said he didn't feel well. And a few minutes later, he collapsed. He fell in the hallway and I ran upstairs and found him and he was unconscious. The paramedics came, they rushed him to the hospital and I called his mom and we waited and waited and waited. And finally the doctor came out. I used to work at the hospital. So I knew that when they call you out back, they usually take you to see the person. And he takes us to this other room. It was one of those moments in my life where I thought, if I just don't go in there, if I just don't go sit down, because I knew what he was going to say. I was like, if I just don't go in that room, is, you know, can I just stop time? Is there anything I can do? It was like this moment where time just sort of stopped. I am so excited because this woman has helped me so much, Amy Morin. You wrote a book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. 
We're going to talk about all 13 things because I have found them so applicable to my life. But you've also just published a new book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. So you're kind of beginning the franchise concept of the 13 things mentally strong people don't do. You're kind of franchising that out now. Yeah, after the first book came out, the biggest question people kept asking me is, how do we teach kids how to be mentally strong? So it seemed like that that parenting book was going to be the next best thing, and it seemed like a a good fit after the first book. And we're going to talk about all 13 things, and... Um, but there's a couple couple things I want to run by you. And then also I want to talk about your story of what led to these books because it's very moving. And and, and just to mention also, um, you've talked about it on a, a very popular TEDx talk uh, where you told your story and it was very beautiful and uh, uh, and moving and, and, and how that led to you, you know, writing these books and dealing with grief and, and, and other things and so on. But um, I feel like this concept, 13... Things mentally strong people, mentally strong X don't do can can apply to many things. So you, of course, took the next step, kids, but it could apply to entrepreneurship, the arts, uh, any type of creativity, sales, and of course, you really only have to read. I mean, for all those things, not the parent, not the kids one, but for many of these topics, you only have to read the first one to get the ideas. But I think the way you tell stories and where when the way you can tell stories within each category could be very compelling. I don't know if you've considered like making 20 books on these. Yeah, I get a lot of times people will say, well, you know, what, what are the things that mentally strong writers don't do? What are yeah. the things mentally strong entrepreneurs don't do? And how do I apply this, you know, specifically to, to my line of work or to my relationships? So I think there are endless opportunities. I'm hoping so anyway. Yeah, it reminds me of... Um, um, that one series, uh, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Yes. You know that? And, and and he actually, I think his name's Richard Carlson. He wrote another book about um, habits for happy people and it never really took off. He wrote it several years before, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Then Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, of course, sold millions of copies. And he could have just left it at that because it had everything. But then he made like, I don't know, 20 more Don't Sweat the Small Stuff for parents, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff for entrepreneurs, writers, whatever, and they all and they work because then he's able to kind of take them and specifically apply. So I, I think that is a, a, a good concept. Yeah, so I'm hoping I hope you so. do it. I hope you Thank do you. it. <laughs> so um, the other thing I want to talk about is, so you, you just came out with uh, 13 things mentally strong parents don't do. I want to get to the word don't in a second, but I want to run run by you one situation I've been in, and then, and then we're going to really dive into anything. Okay. So I'm sorry I'm, I'm dominating the conversation here. For 10 years, I've been writing about how I don't think kids these days should go to college. And I specifically mean like right now, just because student loan debt's so high. Whether I'm right or wrong, I don't know, but I've been writing about it for, for a long time. I have an 18-year-old daughter who really wanted to go to college, and... For a while, we would argue about it, and she would just simply, we, I would start arguing with her, and she would just simply walk away. Like, literally, we, she'd walk away. She didn't want to deal with my argument about it. And I would get upset, and of course, nothing good is accomplished. Her walking away combined with me being upset did nothing to further my goal of her not going to college. And then, of course, now she's 18, and she wanted to go to college, and I wanted to be a good parent, so... I sent her to college and I even took her there. I took her on college tours, you know, and uh, dropped her off day one. And uh, I don't know, is there anything I could have done differently? 
Well, you know, I think once they're 18, you know, to let them make some of their decisions, even if you think it's a mistake, uh, and to listen to them, you know, all you can do is you teach kids the best that you can, and then at some point to say, even if you think it's a mistake, to let them go. And who knows, maybe she'll think it's a mistake someday, but maybe not. So I think, you know, to give your peace, to be able to say, but to also listen to say, what's the reasons you want to go to college? And to hear kids out, sometimes they just need to be heard and validated and but sometimes you also just got to say, okay, right, let them do it. it. It was out of my control. Yep. Otherwise, I could have, maybe it could have been in my control in this very forceful way. Right. But I don't think, I don't think that would have been good for her relationship with me down the road if I want to have long-term success with her. And uh, I can't say I listened to her because she, I don't even think she knew why she wanted to right. go. Um, but I think the main thing for me was not trying to control a situation that was most, let's say, not, you know, at least 60 or 70% out of my control. Like she was going to want to go no matter what. And if you had kept her from going when she's 30, she may then always just blame, well, dad didn't let me go to college. And she yeah. would have never known. And you wouldn't have never known what would happen too. So to let her go and say, okay, let's see what happens. And maybe she'll think it's great. Maybe she'll think it's a mistake, but there's only one way to find out. Yeah, I was worried about that. I was worried at, she'd be 30 when she'd really be in a life crisis and not be, listen to me at all because I had been, you know, so, so forceful and and maybe she'd blame me for some crisis that happened later on because I wouldn't have let her go to college where all her peers were going. Right. Um, but I'll tell you the last thing that I tried to do to uh, persuade her was um, I said to her, listen, just for one year, I'll give you cash, the tuition I would have paid. And all you have to do is every morning watch one movie a day with me and we talk about it for a half hour and then you can go off in New York City. She likes, she loves being an actress. You could go for, you could do whatever you want. You just have to watch one movie a day with me and talk about it for a half hour. She said no and went to college. Wow. <laughs> so is there anything I could have done differently there in your opinion? Oh, you know, I think you made her an offer and then she got to make the choice, right? Yeah. So then to say, okay, you raised a, a strong, independent daughter who was willing to say, I'm not going to, do that if that's not what I want to do. So I think that also speaks kudos to you that you raised a daughter who was willing to say, nope, that's not what I want. I want to do this instead. And then she did it. You know, I, I didn't think that the way, like the way you put it, but I, I, I wrote about it and some people in the comments were like, you know, to say the same thing, like, oh, what's good is you raised this independent thinking daughter. And so, yeah, I guess that was a good thing. I didn't even realize some of the positive things I have been doing, which again is part of the, you know, being mentally strong is sort of kind of looking at the positive instead of being angry over a situation I can't control. So, so I want to get to, um, uh, so many things I want to get to. We've got to figure out the right direction mm -hmm. here. So 13, 13 things mentally strong people don't do. There's a lot of books about habits and building habits and mentally, you know, the, probably the obvious title is here's things mentally strong people do do. So why did you take kind of the, the don't do? Why, 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 why kind of the negative side? You know, as a therapist, I'm trained to build on people's strengths. And over the years, it was all about identifying what people were already doing well and then convincing them to do more of that. And that's helpful. But at some point along the way, I realized maybe I'm kind of doing people a disservice too if I'm not also pointing out, hey, by the way, this one or two things that you're doing is keeping you stuck. Sort of like if you wanted to become physically healthy and you said, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to work out and you worked with a trainer and they kept giving you more exercises, that's great. But what if they didn't tell you, hey, you should also change your diet? 
And because maybe, you know, giving up the two donuts you eat for breakfast is really the key to moving forward. And I felt like it was the same when it came to mental strength, that you can have all of these great habits, but it only takes one or two to cancel out some of the good things that you're doing. And I'm about working smarter, not just working harder. So, so wait, unpacking that, uh, that's so, so fascinating. You could have like lots of good habits, but all it takes is one or two bad habits to derail. You gave the the physical exercise metaphor, but what's what's a mental bad habit that you just need one or two of those mental bad habits and it'll derail 50 good mental habits? Well, you know, so the first one on the list that mentally strong people don't feel sorry for themselves. I run into so many people that will say, you know, when I have a bad day, I call my friends and we talk about it and they think that that's helpful, but really they're venting and they're like looking for sympathy and they're hosting a pity party. Well, when you do something like that, it doesn't matter whether you say, okay, well, I'm sort of a positive thinker or I am getting out and I'm getting exercise every day because that's good for my brain too. But then you do this one thing that it keeps you stuck. So no, just don't do that anymore. And I think venting is one of those things that so many people think I get my emotions out and that helps me to to feel better. And and there's some truth in saying, okay, processing my emotions and talking things out and getting emotional support is healthy. But at some point it crosses the line when you're just calling somebody saying, listen to all the bad things that happened to me. You hang up the phone, call another friend and tell that same tell that same story of listen to all the bad things that happened to me. Then you get stuck. And the more yeah. you think about and talk about the bad things, the worse you feel. Because it, it uh, A, that takes like hours of time. Right. And uh, where you could be creative or, or creating opportunities for yourself or, or solving the problems that, that you were venting about. And then there's the flip side of it. There's the person who likes to listen to people venting. Yes. <laughs> so, so, so what's up with that? Yeah, sometimes we like to be needed. I'll run into a lot of people who say, I'm that person that everybody loves to talk to. And they feel proud of it. Right. And they are they have a hard time setting a limit to say, I don't want to answer the phone or, gee, I don't want to talk about that. And so there's part of them that's feeling like, okay, I hung up the phone and, yes, this person trusted me enough to call me. But then on the other hand, it drags them down too. If you become that person that always gets vented at and everybody always calls to share their problems and all the bad things going on in the world, that affects your state of mind too. Yeah, and uh, do you think in general avoiding toxic people and trying to constantly associate yourself with positive, uplifting people, do you think that's a strong mental habit? I do. Sometimes people will say to me, well, shouldn't you be able to put up with anybody? But our environment definitely impacts us. And sort of like if you were an alcoholic, maybe you shouldn't be a bartender. You know, that it's okay to create an environment that helps you to stay stronger. And that doesn't mean you have to cut out every negative person out of your your life that you've ever met, but your core people, the friends and family and the people you associate with the most are people that you're going to want to inspire you to become stronger and a healthier person. And you brought up the gym metaphor and you bring this up throughout these two books. It's not like someone is mentally strong and then that's it. They're right. Mentally strong for life. It's like uh, the, the gym metaphor applies. It's It's a muscle that needs to be constantly exercised and taken care of. And I think that's really what your your book is about is the, the 13, th- 13 ways to kind of take care and build this muscle. It's ultimately about making yourself mentally stronger. But like you say, to avoid finding maybe what are the one or two habits you have that could derail you and pushing forward through them. And you know, you're a therapist. So I imagine people don't visit you because they have good things happening. They visit you because they have bad things happening in their life, despite many other good things that might be happening. And that maybe that also affected your choice of title. Yeah. You know, I think that's one of the, one of the ways our mental health care system is broken. We wait until people are 
are already having big problems before we help them. We don't do mental health wellness checkups or we don't teach people how to be mentally strong before they have problems. So by the time they come into my office, a lot of people have been struggling with something for five or 10 years. And then we have to try to fix it, try to figure out how do we help you to feel better. But if we could go back in time, and that's what I was hoping to do with the parenting book too, is to start teaching these proactive skills when kids are young so that before they are 30, 40, 50 years old, they already have all the skills that they need to help build more mental muscle. I'm so glad you're a therapist. We're, we're going to get back to that later mm-hmm. when you apply therapy for me. But um, your story started out, I mean, obviously started out when you were born, but your your, your story that you talk about in the book starts out when you're 23 years old, you kind of, you've kind of achieved this sort of straight line definition of um, how we grow up thinking what success looks like. And uh, like all things, like all stories in life, things got derailed. And uh, maybe, you know, maybe you can describe what, what happened that kind of ultimately led to what we're talking about now. Yeah, life was pretty easy. I was fortunate that until I was 23, life was fairly smooth sailing. And I thought, you know, I gave myself some credit for thinking, okay, here we go. I'm a therapist. I am married. I have a house. Uh, become a foster parent already. And I thought... What? I didn't know that. Yeah. So I sort of thought I was like, you know, got this jump start on life. Like, yeah, I'm 23, but I, I've got this handled. And I had done this whirlwind of, of college and then grad school. I was able to finish grad school early and do all of this stuff. And well, why do you think you could be a therapist at 23? I mean, I'm 49. I don't think I can help people with anything. And you were 23. Right. And I think I just didn't know better. I went to college, did the four-year thing, went to grad school. And I was, I was, I think, 21 by the time I graduated and, and became a therapist. So I'd already been a therapist for a couple of years at how'd that you point. Spe- how'd you cruise through grad school so fast? Uh, they had this program where you could do it in, in a year if you did this crazy, you know, summer thing and you went and it was a lot of hours, but it was a matter of just putting it in, putting in the time um, and hunkering down and saying, okay, I'm going to do this and get it done. And I thought, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And before I knew it, here I am a therapist and I think, okay, now I'm supposed to give people wisdom and advice. And really all I'd done was gone through school. And <laughs> but I thought my mission in life was to teach other people to be mentally strong. And I didn't realize how much I was going to need mental strength. So then when I was 23, life was smooth sailing at first. And then I get a phone call from my sister one random night. And she said something about our mother. And she was rushed to the hospital. And I couldn't really figure out what she was trying to tell me. But I hung up the phone and told my husband, Lincoln, we need to go to the hospital. And when we got there, they told us that my mother had had a brain aneurysm. And within 24 hours, she passed away. And my mother and I were always really close. And so then the thought of going She was on, only 51 years old. 51, no history of any health problems or anything. And so it was like she was here one minute and gone the next. I'd just seen her uh, the night before she passed. And so that was my first experience with okay. When that happened, do you, I mean, for me, the loss of a parent was probably the deepest loss I've ever had. And the, the sadness is so incredibly deep. I had never experienced anything like this. Like, was that the sort of feeling you had? It was. My mother and I were so close, and there were so many things I still wanted to do. You know, she she didn't have grandchildren yet. She never got to retire. She had all these plans in life, and I thought she never got to do those things, and she never really got to got to see sort of the end of my story, like what was going to happen. She saw the beginning of my career but wasn't able to see what would happen, and there were so many things that I knew we were just weren't going to get to, to do together, and I thought, ugh. So it's not only missing her, but it was also all of these kind of goals you sort of had for your life with her that you felt now it would be impossible to achieve. 
Yeah, absolutely. So it was, yes, it was missing her and missing, I knew all of the things that we weren't going to be able to do together. And it was a, a strange sense of grief. And I had seen what happened in my therapy office. I had seen what happened when people come in and and didn't deal with something that happened to them. It could be 20, 30 years later, they still couldn't talk about it, or they'd grown bitter and angry because they just weren't able to deal with their pain. Yeah, because like trauma is sort of this, almost like this tattoo on the soul that you might not even know is there, but it's going to keep on affecting you and 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 in ways that are unexpected unless you unless you deal with it. Exactly. So I figured out, okay, if you if you want to deal with it, then you have to figure out how do you heal. And grief is healing. It's painful and it's terrible and it's awful. And our tendency is to try to go around rather than go through. But I knew if I was going to deal with it, I had to go to go through it. People say that though. Is that a little bit of a cliche? Go through it. Like, what does that mean? You know, I think our we want to avoid it. Um, people are uncomfortable when we're sad, so people try to cheer you up, or they say, you know, I'll take you out to dinner because that will help. And those things are all temporary, and that does maybe cheer you up for a minute, but sometimes you just have to sit with the pain and know that it's okay to be sad, and it's okay to be angry, and it's okay to feel all of those emotions and lonely and disappointed and despair. And instead of just distracting yourself, I see so many people that when they go through something tough, they just distract themselves as much as they can and try to escape it. But then ultimately, because they never deal with it, it's sort of like a if you had a physical wound and you just decided I'm going to put a Band-Aid over it, well, it might get infected. you got to clean it out. you got to do things. you got to actually take care of it. And I think our emotional wounds are the same. you got to take care of them if you really want them to heal. So, there, But then there's a balance, right? Like it's, it's on the one hand, it's okay to feel sadness. Like people, you don't have to immediately say, no, no, I'm going to go bowling tonight and it's going right. to be fun. And you, but So it's okay to sit with sadness, but at the same time, you do need some forward motion, even a tiny bit, I think is what you're saying right here. I, I don't know. Yeah, it is. Because you, you don't want to get stuck there. 20 years later, you don't want to still be sitting in a dark room staring at the wall being sad. But to be able to know, okay, it's okay to be sad. And what am I going to do to take care of my sad feelings? And so sometimes that's good things to cheer yourself up. By all means, go out with friends and, and do fun things. But don't let yourself do that all the time to be able to say, okay, I'm just going to sit and be and allow myself to be sad right now. You need that balance. But by the way, I just mentioned bowling as like a side like I didn't mean that that necessarily is a cure for sadness. <laughs> so I used to bowl as a kid. I understand. <laughs> uh, so, so what? What we're going to get to the next event in your life. But what did you do right then to kind of, um, because you were already a therapist, you already understood about grief and dealing with it, and and you had seen situations. What did you do to not only sit with the sadness then, but also try to move forward? You know, I took some time off from work. I knew I couldn't be an effective therapist if I uh, jumped right back into work. So I took as much time off as I could, and then. About two and a half weeks after my mother died, my dad's house caught on fire and uh, didn't burn down, but it had extensive damage. And that was all of my mom's possessions were gone at that point. A lot of them anyway, because it had smoke damage and water damage. And that's why sort did of it go thing. on fire? I was an electrical fire. It started in our basement. We were having work done on the on their kitchen at the time. And um, my mother had planned this new kitchen remodel sort of after my sister and I graduated from college. And um, she passed away in the process of it, and a couple of weeks later, the um, isn't that weird? It is. Like not only did she die, but all of her things died. Right, and so that was sort of another thing then to figure out. Okay, well, those things that my mother owned weren't her. You know that it was tempting to sort of say, okay, I'm going to keep all of her stuff and um, to remember her by. But it was one of those moments where I just had to remember. You know that those were her things, but those aren't her. And um, to honor my memories and to make sure that I um, 
really respected that, but at the same time to know that it was okay to to go on and make new memories and to go out and do new things and to figure out sort of this new sense of normal in our life. My parents had been married since my dad was 19 and my mother was 18. So then to see my father alone too was another experience in he itself. He must have been devastated. He was. And so, you know, here my dad is this big, strong man, and now he's he's widowed and to figure out, well, what's that going to be like, too, to, to see my dad? He'd never really lived on his own. And so there were a lot of different things going on, and it was a matter of just figuring out a new sense of normal. It took a long time to get there, but eventually we did. What did he do in, in that those first moments? Because he must have thought to himself, oh, my gosh, like he was, I guess, 52 years old, uh, which is, again, I'm 49, so I, I can't even imagine he's three years older than me. Um, what did he do when he, he must have been thinking, he must have been putting together the whole story in this weird way. Like, why is this happening to me? First, my wife of all these years dies. Then all her things disappear. <laughs> what am I going to do next? Did he reach out for help? Did he, or did he get it too sad? Like, what happened to him? Yeah, he uh, spent a, you know a lot of time with friends, family. My mother had a wonderful family who um, sort of circled the wagons and came out and uh, was very supportive to all of us um, and his family as well and friends and. The community, we live in a small town. I grew up in the same place where my parents lived. And so the community was wonderful. And it was sort of one of those things where you could just see. He worked in a, a neighboring town, but he was the postmaster in a really small post office. So he knew everybody in town. And the outpouring of love from people, I think, was one of the biggest things that helped him get through it. So so, um, so to extrapolate from that, kind of um, almost preparing for um, potential, there's always going to be things that derail our lives and kind of not necessarily being anxious about them in advance, but kind of preparing in a way by building solid connections in your community, raising a good family that could support you or building a good family that could support you. Keeping Having these mentally strong habits will prepare you better for these inevitable, not not everything's inevitable, but you know some things are inevitable. And you know that that's kind of a good approach to this. You yeah, know. both of my parents were wonderful giving people. And so I think for the first time, it sort of was able to come back to my dad. He's not usually on the receiving end of of all of this kindness and outpouring of love. But it really, I think, spoke volumes of his character and my mother's character that all these years they had been so kind and giving and the first ones to help other people that so many people were were willing to help him when he needed it too. I, I think, and this, this touches upon, you just touched upon two different things you mentioned in, in your book. Um, one is uh, when you're experiencing a negative thought or like despair or whatever, to kind of reach for a positive, more productive thought at the same time. So you can still have the despair, but at the same time, reach for something more positive. Like you just were describing your mom and then the loss of all her belongings. And so you had to find ways to not just say, oh, why is this all happening right now? You had to also say, I have to honor these memories that are inside of myself instead of with her possessions or whatever. Like you reached for the positive and he reached for the positive. Your dad reached for the positive. Right, absolutely. And to know that you know, reframing your negative thoughts isn't about just thinking everything's wonderful and um, being overly positive, but to come up with something realistic that says, okay, this is hard and how can I get through it? What steps can I take? Because you can always do something to make your life or somebody else's life. You can always do something. Yes, just a little bit better, you know, rather than sitting around and exaggerating how bad your life is or thinking, poor me. Well, why do people think they can't always, why do, I don't think everybody thinks you can always do something. I think people think they're doomed. 
in many cases. Right. So why do you think that is? I think it's a learned helplessness. I think it's a, a big problem that people just grew up thinking nobody's going to help me, so why should I bother or I can't make a difference? And that becomes such a habit that we see it in psychological studies all the time, but I see it in people's lives all the time too where they just think I can't do anything because it's not going to help anyway. Yeah, I think that kind of giving up right. is hard. And I think the other thing, you're, it sounds like your dad did, um, I, I had kind of a trauma in my life about two years ago and I had always been afraid to ask for help. I always thought, no, I should be the one. I don't want to, I, I don't like asking for help. I feel funny doing that. I should always be the one giving help. But I was so kind of in trauma at that moment, I had to ask for help. And it sounds like your dad did as well in his community and so on. Yes, and I think a lot of people think that that's being strong, saying I don't need anybody to help me, but that's acting tough. And there's a big difference between being strong and acting tough. And being strong, you can say, okay, I can't do this, I need help. And to acknowledge that takes strength. Yeah, why, why does that take strength? You know, because I think there's so much of us that wants to pretend like we have it all together. And to be honest with yourself, you have to say, no, I don't have all the answers. And that's hard to do sometimes, or to say, okay, I'm going to reach out to somebody and and ask them to support me. That takes courage to do that. Yeah, I don't have all the answers, I think, is a, is a key mantra. Right. Because none of us, it's hard. You, none of us do. Right. Life is hard. It is. And I think it's so tempting sometimes to put on that mask and say, I'm going to pretend like I have everything together all the time. And we think that that, so many people think that that's about being strong, but it's not. You know, I um, I don't like having people on the podcast who write all this theoretical stuff. Oh, scientific research says if you do this, this, and this, you'll be happier. But you've, you, what I love about your book is that it's so story-driven, starting with your own story, and then in each chapter you tell stories. You're a great storyteller. And within each chapter you tell stories of people you've either experienced through your work or other people who are, you know, who are well-known and who have written books about their own situations. I think that's a real great driving force of the book and what's made it so popular. But the next event in your life happened a few years after your mom died. Maybe you could describe that. Sure. That um, was also incredibly devastating from the way I read it. Yeah, it was the three-year anniversary of when my mother died. And for anybody who's lost somebody, you know that sometimes anniversaries, birthdays of somebody who's passed on can be difficult. And so my husband Lincoln and I were like, oh, what are we going to do this weekend? And on the three-year anniversary, and coincidentally, friends called and said, you should come to this basketball game in rural Maine in February. There's not a lot going on, but uh, we watch basketball in the winter. And it was being held at the same auditorium where I saw my mom the night before she passed away. And and I thought, okay, let's let's go. Let's see what happens. And these are friends that had I'd grown up with, and so they they knew my mother. And we went, and we talked about her, and we had this great time. And I thought, oh, that's nice, you know. So, so again, stopping before mm-hmm. the event, mm-hmm. the quote unquote event, um, you took what could have been a negative, could have been, and and it clearly you probably were there and sad, but you also reached for the positive in that moment. You had a fun time with your friends. You honored your mother's memory. Mm-hmm. So again, you kind of sat with the sadness, but reached for something positive, which I think is really important, and people forget to do that. Right. But then... Yeah, so then uh, we get home that night, and uh, and Lincoln said he didn't feel well, and I didn't think anything of it, but a few minutes later, he collapsed. Well, when he said he didn't feel well, he, he I think you mentioned well, he was feeling something in his back. Yeah, yeah, he said he had some back pain, and um, he'd been in a car accident a few years ago and had injured his back, so it wasn't particularly unusual for him to have back pain every once in a while, 
Um, so was there anything in his face or anything that mm, would have been suggested something's different? No, not at all. Uh, and then it was just a, f- a few minutes later, he collapsed. And so I called an ambulance, and we only lived two-tenths of a mile from the hospital. And so I just thought, okay, if we can just get him to the hospital. I didn't even know what to say. I, I don't know what happened because it all happened so fast. When you say he collapsed, was he unconscious? Or he was. was. Mm-hmm. And so um, I he fell in the hallway, and I had heard him, and ran upstairs and found him, and he was unconscious by the time I got there. And... So the paramedics came, they rushed him to the hospital, and I called his mom and said, you got to get here. And I didn't really know what to tell her either. I said, I don't know if it was a seizure or what happened, but something. And so she got there, and we waited in in the waiting room of the ER and waited and waited. And finally, the doctor came out and called us. And I used to work at the hospital, and so I knew that when they call you out back, they usually take you to the room, and you get to see the person. And and rather than go that direction, he takes us to this other room. Well, when he's starting, when he says, "Let's go to the other room," and 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 by then you already had a sense of if you had rational thought then, because maybe there's many situations where you might not have been thinking rationally because it was so horrifying. But were you like immediately like, "Ugh, was it a kick in the stomach?" It was. It was one of those moments in my life where I thought, if I just don't go in there, if I just don't go sit down, and I do because I I knew what he was going to say because I knew they don't share good news with you. And so I was like, if I just don't go in that room, is you know, can I just stop time? Is there anything I can do? It was like this moment where time just sort of stopped. And 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 we went in there and we sat down. And sure enough, he said, I'm sorry to tell you. And as soon as those words came out of his mouth, I knew what was coming next. And he said, Lincoln passed away. And it was just, it brought me right back to when my mother had passed away. And the doctor had said very, you know, similar words. And I thought, how could this be? He and- was... Both of these situations were, were shocking because they were within, in, in the case of your mom, was within a day or two. Yeah. And and she was young and a brain aneurysm's, you know, an odd kind of random thing. What was, so Lincoln was 26. Yeah. What was, what was the story? We found out later he had a heart attack and he, doctors think he probably had some sort of genetic anomaly that we just weren't aware of. Um, but he didn't have any history of heart problems. There was no... Signs. So do, you think, do you think the prior car accident that it was in a few weeks earlier had sort of triggered kind of some trauma in the heart? I don't think so. The car accident had been a couple of years oh. before that. And so, and he'd gotten a clean bill of health. You know, he'd seen tons of doctors after his car accident and such, and, and nobody ever found anything, you know? So it was one of those. And they had said, too, the particular genetic issue he had, even if they'd found it, there was really nothing that they would have done about it anyway. So he had like a a, a clock on him? You think from like decades earlier? Yeah, that's what we pretty much, uh, the conclusion based on the information from the doctors is, you know, it just was what it was. And there wasn't anything we could have done to prevent it, which was somewhat um, helpful to know, okay, it wasn't that we did anything wrong or that we should have caught something and we didn't. It was just one of those things. So it's helpful sometimes to know that something was really out of your control and you're right. not, you can't blame yourself. Um, but then you get home, okay, you're home alone in your in your house, mom had passed away three years earlier. Lincoln had just passed away, and and the house is empty and silent. Uh, you obviously did not expect that a twenty six year old person. What were you thinking right then when you walked into the house that first time after the hospital? You know, it was surreal. It was like in the it's like my brain couldn't quite wrap 
wrap around what was going on. So for the first several weeks, even, it was like I was still expecting him to walk through the door or I was still thinking, you know, wait. So there's a denial stage. Right. Sort of like, wait till I tell him about this or about that. And even while we were planning his funeral and I, I find myself picking out the clothes for his funeral and it was just so surreal. And it was like I was waiting for it to be over as if it was just a bad dream or something like was going to happen, but it wasn't. And it took a while for that to really sink in that this is life now, that he's not coming back, that he's not here. And I'm never going to be able to talk to him about what life was like during this rough period. And it was just a really surreal experience. Yeah, I can't, I, I actually can't even imagine that. Did you, uh, I'm sorry if this sounds personal, but did you cry like every single night? Yeah, you know, at first I think I was just numb. I just had, I cried all the time, but then I, at some point there's just no tears left. And and then it was a matter of, well, yeah, what am I going to do now? And what do I even do with my time? And I took about three months off from work this time around because I said, you know, two weeks or five weeks isn't going to do it. I need a lot longer um, because I'm definitely not in any shape to help anybody. And I was fortunate during that time. We never planned for for me to have anybody to, to have lunch or have dinner with. But for three months, randomly, somebody would call. As far as I know, nobody planned this. Every single day, I had either lunch or dinner with somebody. Did you, and, and like you said, they called you, but did you ask for help at all? Or was it just you had such a great community of friends and, and stuff who, who cared about you that that they all chipped in, in a sense? Yeah, for the most part, they all just chipped in. His Lincoln's friends were wonderful. His family was wonderful. They still are. My friends and family, just everybody just sort of came together and were willing to to be there and do whatever they could for me. And there were times I didn't even know what I needed or what I wanted, but people were just there anyway and were willing to just do whatever they could. Yeah, it's, uh, again, my some of my traumatic situations are nowhere as near as uh, horrible. I mean, I can't even imagine that the situation you just described. But in one one time, I had a friend say to me, um, all I want you to do is take a photo of every meal and who you're having the meal with. So I know you're eating and socializing. And she said, send it to me just so I could check. <laughs> and so I actually wasn't ready for that. So I would just go to the restaurant downstairs and find a way and order something and say to the waiter, just do a selfie with the waiter and here's the food. And then I would just go back up to my house. I'd pay for it and, just, and I wouldn't eat it and just go back up to my house. But but it sounds like you did the real thing. Yes. <laughs> I, you know, and I think to have a friend who does that, I think speaks volumes for somebody to say, I just want to make sure that you're okay. And uh, and I had friends that would, you know, show up and be like, okay, let's, let's go do something or let's make sure that you get out of the house or... Um, what can I do? Can I help you clean your house? Whatever it was, but I had a lot of people that were willing to not just say, let me know if there's anything I can do for you, but they would just show up and say, let's do this and, and would do it. Go After after this event, and trust me, this is all building into the book because we've already been describing lots of things in the book that, right. that, that you used that then ended up in the book. But we'll get more methodical in a second. Um, but when you first went back to um, your job as a therapist, were you thinking to yourself, oh, I'm sick of listening to these people's problems. Like, they don't have any problems. I had the problems. You know, so the first day I went back, my boss and I had this conversation about what it was like to go back. They, My clients were all just told I was out on a family emergency. They were given the option to see a different therapist if they wanted or to wait for me to come back. And almost all of them waited for me to come back. And very few of them knew. A few people had heard through the grapevine because it's a small community. 
what had happened, but most of them had no idea. And the first person I sat down with after I returned, she said, I'm so glad you're back. You're not going to believe what happened to me when you were gone. And I said, really, what happened? And she said, my husband almost died of a heart attack. And it was in that moment I thought, okay, here we go. I'm going to have to figure out how do I help other people deal with their problems without having this sort of resentment or thinking, well, my husband did die of a heart attack. And and I was yeah, able to... Yeah, like that must have been... Right. Did you get well, angry? Did you get angry right then? You know, I think I was just like using as much self-talk as I could to say, okay, just, you know, stay calm. You got to be with this woman. And and I thought, you know, when I get that, I completely understand how traumatic that would be to almost lose your husband as well. And um, I just had to make sure that I put myself in other people's shoes as much as I could to say, okay, I get that. And you, who's to say whose pain is worse or who has more difficulties in life? And for a lot of these people that come into my office, they don't necessarily have an awesome support system or they didn't have the skills. They didn't go to college to be a therapist. And so the things they were struggling with were just as real as the things I was struggling with. And so who was I to minimize it? And so a lot of conversations with myself to just remind myself, okay, be with these people and who are struggling. And and I think on a on a new level, I was just able to relate to people's pain probably more than I ever had before. That's a definite. So that's why I think your book is important as opposed to, you just writing a book about 13 things mentally strong people don't do. Because uh, without experiencing that pain and and using your own ideas uh, to go, get through it, I think you would have been useless as a writer. Yeah. Be- because I, I think people say, oh, they did a statistical study with a thousand people. Ultimately, the only real sample size is, is one. If you can kind of use your ideas to get through a difficult situation, then it's fair enough for you to write about them or, or discuss them. And then whether or not people follow those ideas is up to them. Um, but you're just telling your, your, your book, even though it's a list, 13, you know, it's, 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 it's this um, kind of the, te- the premise is technique driven. It's really story driven. Nobody has to follow your techniques, but they say, oh, she had this story and these stories that she writes about other people have their stories and this is what they did. And then it's up to them whether they follow those techniques, but it's still story driven, which I think is the power of your book as opposed to so much self-help jargon and books that are out there who I just would never even just talk to those people. But, um, but now I want to go through your, your 13 things because, and I don't remember by heart the list, even though I have notes on each one of them, but, um, uh, and the first one kind of is, is, is maybe most important from the situation you came out of, which is, uh, mentally strong people don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves. Yeah, I think, you know, to back up a little bit, most people don't know that this list, it wasn't meant to be a book. It was an article. And I wrote the article to myself a few years down the road. Publishers um, are such vultures. They see an article that's popular and they say, oh, can it's a, it's a brilliant three-page article. Can you make that into a 250-page book? And you're like, how am I going to do that? But then you did all the research and you found like hundreds of stories that you're able to write about. So kudos to you for, for not just stretching out three pages to 250 pages, which is Thank another you. big mistake that writers make and you did not make it. Right, you know, and so when I had written it, it was a 600-word list, but it was a letter to myself. My I was facing the... Uh, death of my father-in-law and knew that we had maybe a couple of weeks left before doctors were saying he's going to pass away. And after going through really sudden losses and when my mother had died and when Lincoln had died, and then I thought, okay, now I'm going to lose my father-in-law. And I was thinking, this isn't fair. I shouldn't have to deal with this. And it's digging in my heels and then had that moment of, no, Amy, mentally strong people don't do that. 
And so then I wrote the list, and that's why the first one on the list is that mentally strong people don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves because I was tempted to throw a pity party for myself. Can you do it a little, though? Like, again, you have to sit with sadness a little bit. Right, and to figure out, okay, the difference between being sad and self-pity. Well, being sad is about saying, yeah, this is tough, this is hard, and it's going to be awful. But self-pity is when you're thinking nobody's problems are as big as mine, my life is worse than everybody else's. It's when you start to exaggerate how bad things are. And taking it one step further that um, your life is always going to be bad. Right, right. Because look, you, 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 so, so one, one year your mother died, three years later your husband died, uh, then four years later you, you remarried, but then almost right away his father was, was getting sick and, and passed away. So you could, it's very easy for, for you to think, I'm doomed. Right. Right, and so it's sort of like I was thinking, why is it all these people around me keep passing away? I'm looking around. Oh, you could build this story. Right, right. I'm somehow this, you know, misfortunate individual, and this is every time I find somebody that um, that I love that they're just not going to last very long. And if I would have gone with that, I could have very easily just thought, you know, well, this isn't fair, and why do I keep putting myself in these situations that I allow myself to love people because they're just going to leave you anyway. I mean, it could have gone 101 different ways, but sort of in that moment, I reminded myself of that. And that's when I wrote the list of all the 13 things mentally strong people don't do. And it wasn't because I'd mastered it. It was because I struggled with it. And then I... Which is the key, I, I think, to writing well, to writing about these things from an informed manner. Right. And then I thought, you know, if it helps me, maybe it'll help somebody else. I didn't imagine it would turn into a viral article that became a book. But um, that's why the first thing on the list, though, is that mentally strong people don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves because it wasn't helpful to me at that time. And I know it's not helpful to other people to throw a pity party either. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I think a lot of the items on your list boil down to, not boil down to, because I think it's important to think about each thing separately, but a lot of it is about surrender. Like if you waste time feeling sorry for yourself, um, you know, uh, one way to kind of get through that is to just surrender to the fact, okay, this happened, now what? These are the cards I'm dealt. I wish I was dealt two aces, but I was dealt a two and a seven, and now I've got to play the hand. Yes, and I think people get the word acceptance confused. You can accept that something happened. It doesn't mean you have to accept that it's okay that it happened. But you mm. can say, this is what happened to me, and what am I going to do about it next? And so what did you do then? Uh, you know, at that uh, point in my life when I wrote the article, I was like, okay, here's the article. Here we go. I might as well, if my father-in-law has a couple of weeks left on the planet, how do I make the best of that time? How do I be helpful to to my family? And how do I uh, not, I didn't want to do anything that made me regret if I thought, you know, if I just sit in a dark room by myself for two weeks, uh, will I appreciate that later on in life? No, absolutely not. So I just did spend as much time with my father-in-law and my second husband and his family as I could to say, how do you make the best of what you have? And and how do they respond to you kind of thinking about this or talking talking like this? Um, you know, they responded well. It was a strange time in our life um, when the article went viral was about the same time my father-in-law became unresponsive. And um, so it was a weird time. The phone's ringing off the hook with this viral article, but our family's very privately dealing with something else. And I can remember in the couple of weeks leading up to that, just looking at him and thinking, you know, we're out at dinner and here's a waitress and she happens to be really nice, but I'm thinking she has no idea that being kind to us right now, how important that is, that 
this could be this man's last time out at a restaurant with his grandkids. And it just it was a really strange time in life to think, you know, how life can change in an instant and how sometimes we know what's coming and sometimes we don't and how you just need to enjoy every minute that you can while you have it. And and when, when your father-in-law became unresponsive at the same time that, you know, the, this article, which eventually became a very successful book, your, your article went viral, did did anybody kind of resent the success of the article, given that it was happening in the middle of this tragedy? No, not in the least. My husband's family was all very kind about it. And, and your husband? Yes. And, you know, it sort of gave us... Um, something else to think about too, you know, while it was like, okay, how do you, how do you celebrate something at the same time as be really sad? It was a really interesting time, but, um, which, which seems to be a big theme too, kind of reaching for the positive while something sad, right. Legitimately sad is happening. Right. You know, I, I, um, I, I read somewhere that the key to success in a relationship, they, they did a scientific study. So I mean, I'm going to fall back on, on this story, but I've seen this in my own personal experiences. Um, it's not people who support each other through bad times. It's people who support e- who are happy for each other in successful times or successful moments. So, when, like, let's say your article goes viral, which it did. One response is, "Oh, sure, you know, I got to deal with this, and you just go off and enjoy your success." Or instead, instead of that, that'd be the negative thing. Instead of that being legitimately happy for you, that's a much that's the best sign of future success in a relationship is when two people can do that. Yeah, I think that's a spot on. I think absolutely to be able to celebrate one another's success and to be able to say, I'm not going to keep score. It doesn't matter. It's just, I'm going to be genuinely happy for you, even even though my life isn't perfect or we're going through this other really tough thing. It's okay to also celebrate something at the same time. That's one of those articles where um, with like psychiatrists were like observing couples and they could tell within like five seconds or whatever which couples would survive and which weren't and that and it turned out of the quadrant of things that could happen that was the that was the most important quadrant but um okay so your your next thing and by the way feeling sorry for yourself is or not feeling sorry for yourself is difficult yes uh i think it, it should be stressed that all of these things in your thir- your list of 13 are things that require noticing, oh, I, I'm noticing that I'm feeling sorry for myself maybe a little bit too much, and then acting on it. Right. Both are difficult muscles that have to be practiced. Yeah, I run into some people who say, oh, I don't do any of those things on your list. I'm 13 for 13. <laughs> yeah, right. We all do these things sometimes, and it's hard to admit that you do them, and then it's hard to break free of that habit once you say, okay, I do this sometimes, now how do I not do it? It's different than saying, okay, how do I just have enough good habits, but how do I give up these bad habits that I have? Yeah, and 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 again, I think a lot of people don't have the sort of meta skill to notice when a bad habit is happening. You have to kind right. of look out from outside of you and say, "Oh, I'm doing one of these bad. I hate to use the word bad, but I'm doing one of these. Oh, I'll use it again. Bad habits. How do you build that ability to notice? You know, sometimes if you have people in your life who will point it out to you kindly, and you're willing to listen to that, it can be helpful." But a lot of people ask, don't have people that would be honest, and a lot of people aren't willing to take that feedback. They become defensive. But it can also, if you just try to develop some insight to take a step back sometimes and just think about it, think, well, when was the last time I felt sorry for myself? And be honest. And that takes some courage to do that, even to admit it to yourself. Some people find journaling helps. Other people just a little bit of quiet time helps. But to just take a step back sometimes and think about life instead of just going out there and doing stuff. 
Yeah, and and, and again, kind of uh, be, simply being aware of this list and kind of maybe even running it down, running down it as a checklist. Am I doing this? Am I doing this? And so on might be a good way to practice that that meta muscle. Right. Absolutely. Um, this is a really important one, which I have. This next one is is so important. I think in terms of career and in terms of success, in terms of creativity, um, mentally strong people don't give away their power. And this is one I get from people who will say, well, I didn't realize I was doing it. Or I'll run into people who say, yeah, that's my biggest one that I do. And it's really about saying other people don't have the power to control how you think, feel, or behave. And we do it so often that becomes a habit where you say, I have to do something. Well, to just change your language and say, no, I'm choosing to do that. Whether you say, oh, I have to go grocery shopping today or I have to go to my neighbor's house for dinner tonight. No, you don't. You don't have to do any of that. And just to remind yourself, I'm in control. I don't have to do those certain things in life. If I want to spend time with certain people, I can. If I don't, I don't have to. And there's consequences for all the choices that you make, but just recognizing those things are choices. And even if you are around somebody who's critical of you, it doesn't have to affect your self-worth unless you allow them to. You can say, no, even if you have a poor opinion of me, I can still feel highly of myself. And for a lot of people, that's sort of a new concept that you can be in control of all of those things. Yeah, I think people I think people have a tendency to outsource their happiness to either other people or yeah. outcomes. So for instance, I could say, I'm going to be happy uh, when I'm promoted. So I'm going to work really, really hard. And once my boss promotes me, I'll finally be happy and I can relax. And of course, that A, there's a good chance that might not lead to your happiness because what what is happiness made out of? It's probably not made out of a promotion. And second, you might not get that promotion for reasons that you know we'll see later are out of your control. Now, some people might say, though, to, to one of your examples, oh, this is easy for her to say, I have six kids and a mortgage, so I've got to work my horrible job all day and then go out grocery shopping at the end and then do laundry until 10 o'clock or midnight and then wake up again to get the kids to school. I have no choice. It sounds like she has choices and I don't. Well, and to remind yourself that it still is a choice, okay? Maybe you aren't going to go to work. Well, obviously then you can't feed your family. But just simply recognizing that nobody's forcing you to go to work, nobody's forcing you to, to stay up all night and do laundry, that you're choosing to do it. And just making that shift in your head to say, okay, I, I can do these things or I get to do these things is a well, lot different. I'm gonna argue though, I can't mm-hmm. not choose, I can't choose to not do the laundry. My kids need laundry, my six, my 12 kids need the laundry. There are plenty of kids who go to school with dirty clothes, right? I'm a foster parent. I see people who, kids whose parents made choices not to do those things. Those are the consequences of hey, not I doing I came to this podcast wearing dirty clothes, so... <laughs> See, it was it. a choice. You didn't have to do laundry. <laughs> I totally did not have to. So, But again, though, some people will say, but I've got to pay the bills. I've got to pay the mortgage. How I have to go to this job I don't like, and I can't quit it because the job market's crazy in my area of the country, and I don't have any other skills. You know, I'm making up a story, but right. um, what do you say to them? You know, just again, making that shift to remind yourself... I don't have to go to work. Yeah, if I don't go to work, I don't get paid and then I can't pay the bills. And those are the consequences, but nobody's pushing you out the door and pushing you into your job and making you stay there all day. And just recognizing, okay, it's a choice, can make all the difference in the world for some people. And knowing I'm choosing to do this because I want to take care of my family is different than saying I have to do this because somebody's forcing me to. I think also, and you you talk about this um, uh, throughout the book too, 
no matter what your situation is, there's always small steps you can take, even tiny minuscule steps you could take to, to play around with changing your situation. So maybe someone says, oh, I have to go to this job. And maybe they do tomorrow have to go to this job, but they can also just expand the horizon a little bit. Well, what other things can I do to make a little extra money? And they might not have good ideas at first, but just kind of having that mindset too of taking action in other directions to, to widen their choices might be a way to approach this. Yeah, we get stuck in these habits. So when we do the same thing almost every day, day in, day out, all the little things that we do. So sometimes it might be, I'm going to go, instead of eating lunch at my desk, I'm going to go speak to one of my coworkers. Or instead of sitting in the back corner during the meetings, I'm going to sit somewhere else. Just those little shifts that you can do or to talk to somebody new or to break out of your routine a little bit can change the course of your day. Yeah, so it's, again, it's like a, a, a meta habit on top of these habits, which is to... um you know, taking action when you when you think you're doomed. So you have a great story of the the guy, the patient of yours who was diabetic, but was sent to you because maybe part of his problems were mental. And right. and what you encouraged him to do, he he felt he was doomed because of his family history and so on. And his diabetes was just getting worse and worse. He was losing his eyesight. I imagine I'm just making this up, but I'm imagining he was obese. You didn't necessarily mention that in the in the book. But you simply said, why don't you try one thing? Switch to Diet Pepsi from Pepsi. And he suddenly noticed a change. And, and I think that helped him realize, oh, there's a, a meta muscle here, which is that small changes might work. Yeah, and it could be just as simple as that. You know, I'm going to try something different. And he was convinced, this particular gentleman was convinced it wasn't going to work, but he sort of did it because he and I talked about it. And he's like, whatever, Amy, I'll do it. And we'll see what happens. And then couldn't believe, okay, saw just a little bit of results. But as soon as he saw a little bit of a change, it motivated him to do more. And he said, okay, if I see that little bit of results now, I'm willing to try something else and see what happens. So I think if we looked at life more like an experiment to say, okay, what can I do? And even if you think it's not going to work, sometimes prove yourself wrong. Your brain isn't always right. Yeah, look at life as an experiment. And again, I think the strongest research is a sample size of one when you're, if it's yourself. So right. trying these experiments. So then you know, oh, yeah, that worked for me. Right. So, and I can do it. Because most people could see, oh, well, switching from Pepsi to Diet Pepsi works, but they still can't do it. Right. Because uh, they can't, they can't, they don't have that meta skill. Um, number three, they don't shy away from change. This one is tough. We tend to think, okay, my situation's bad, but I don't want to make it worse. Like what? You know, I run into a lot of people who are in a horrible relationship. And they say, well, you know, I don't want to go to couples counseling because I don't want to rock the boat. But I don't want to end the relationship because I've put in 10 years of hard work. So I don't want to throw that away. What, what, that's in situations that are relationships that are bad uh, for whatever reason, like maybe someone's cheating or abusive or whatever. What about relationships that are, or jobs or situations that are good, but you feel like better can happen? Um, how do you know when it's time to change? As because because they might get because those are situations where it might get worse yep. before it gets better. Oh, I'm in a great job, but I really want to be a painter. <laughs> and wh when do you know? that change is appropriate or I'm being kind of crazy for doing this? You know, sometimes there's only one way to, to figure it out. Say, I'm going to take the leap and what's going to happen. But, and I think part of being mentally strong is knowing I'll be okay no matter what. If this doesn't work out, that's okay. I'm still going to be me and I'm still going to be okay. And I think when people have that confidence, then they're able to make 
a lot of things work anyway. How do they build that confidence? I mean, I could read it in your book, but that won't give it me more confidence. You know, it's about changing changing your thoughts, about changing your behavior, and being in control of your emotions. It's a process. But when you figure out that that you can control those three things, I think that's when it becomes an option to say, I'm going to take the leap, even though I don't necessarily feel like it's 100% guaranteed. I'm going to do it anyway. What's maybe some way to practice change so so you build that confidence? Yeah, I think the next time your brain tells you you can't do something, just remind yourself, challenge accepted. I'm going to go prove my brain wrong. And the more that you prove your brain wrong over time, you start to your brain will start to physically change. Studies show that your brain will physically change and your brain will start to see you in a different light. So if you Is that right? Like it, your your neural pathways or whatever will will change? Yeah, you can see it on neuroimaging studies that you can physically alter your brain just by changing the way that you think and changing the way that you behave. So if your brain tells you you can only run a half a mile, but you run a half a mile plus five steps, after a while, your brain will start to see that oh, maybe maybe you're a little more athletic than I give you credit for. I, I had on the podcast once um, Jesse Itzler, and he was talking about um, physical training, and he was he was saying basically at the point where your brain starts screaming, you can't do another whatever, you can't do another push up. It's it's that this is it. At that point, you can always do forty percent more. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's accurate that our brain in a lot of ways underestimates our ability to do things. And if you listen to your brain, you'll sell yourself short in life. I always believe in what I call the the discomfort zone that, um, of course, it's great to always be in the comfort zone because it's comfortable. But sometimes it's good to at least practice being a little uncomfortable sometimes. And so uh, one time I wanted to get good at a certain skill. So I wanted to I figured a way to practice this is I'll go on the subway and I'm going to do stand-up comedy on the subway. And there's no downside to it because who cares? But the brain really does not want you to do it. And if you suggest to other people to do it, they will say, no way, I am not doing that because the brain is screaming again. You cannot do this. But it turns out once you start doing it, you can do it. Right. Because there actually is zero downside to doing it. And there's only upside, which is now you've done it. And I love that example because I think so often we think, I can't do this. And then you stop and you think, well, why not, right? <laughs> why yeah. not just go out there and do it anyway? And even if you can if you can behave contrary to the way you feel and the way that you think sometimes, it will change things for you and you'll start to see things a little bit differently. Just like your example of the mother doing the laundry at 10 at night. Okay, some kids do go to school with the clothes a little dirty. You know, that's a little uncomfortable maybe, but... Um, it's possible. Right. It's not the end of the world. Particularly if you have 12 kids. Oh, right. my gosh. In my made-up story. Um, number four, they don't... So this, by the way, I'm going through these things slowly. I don't know if you want to speed yeah, up. I fine. like talking about each one because as I was reading the book... and now, First off, I've read the book when it first came out, and then I've gone back to it because I think this list is so useful. It's, it's a good book to refer to afterwards. Um, because that's why I had so many questions on each thing. Number four, they don't focus on things they can't control. Another extremely important thing, like everybody is a little bit of a control freak because they think that if they give up control, then bad things will happen. Right, and I run into a lot of people that do that where they think, okay, if I can just manage every little thing in my life, I'll be okay. And they create that rule for themselves that sort of says, you'll be okay if, and it's if you can control the outcome of everything. And how anxiety-provoking is that when you think, I have to be in control of everything? 
And oh, it's horrible. It is. And for to let go of that and to say, I can't control other people. I can't always control the outcome. And I work with a lot of people on creating goals that are about what you can what you can control. So, for example, somebody will say, uh, my goal is to get a promotion. Well, you can't control whether your boss gives you a promotion. You can control how how much effort you put in or how you work, but you can't control that outcome. And so for a lot of people, it's about making that shift to saying, okay, I'm going to focus in life on what I can control and recognize that you could be the best worker on earth, but if your boss doesn't recognize that, you might not get a promotion. Right, and another way kind of to say that is, you can. It's much easier to control the process than the outcome of that process. So, for instance, when you put in a lot of effort into getting that promotion, you might not get the promotion, but you did put in the effort, and the effort has both external and internal results. Now you know how to put in that effort. Now you probably learn more skills while you were putting in that effort, and that might lead to a, a different job or a better job or whatever if you don't get that promotion. Right, and so many of us, I think, measure success on the outcome and the things that we can't control, and that's why we then think, oh, I'm a failure, I can't do these things in life, and we reinforce these self-limiting beliefs that we have, but really, you might have done a really awesome job, and for circumstances beyond your control, you didn't get to where you wanted to be, but that doesn't mean that you're a failure or that you did something wrong, necessarily. And I would say, I mean, I mean, looking at your own life and situations, but I also, of course, while I'm reading this, I look at mine, most things in my life didn't go the way I wanted them to. Right. So very basic examples. I went to graduate school. I thought I was going to finish graduate school. Like most people who enter something think they're going to finish it. And I didn't finish graduate school. I got thrown out. And But I did learn skills in the process. And I learned more about what I really wanted to, to do with my life. But But then every step of the way, nothing ever really happened at the end that I thought was going to happen when I started something at the beginning. You kind of have to surrender to, you have kind of have to surrender to the fact that if you do take the actions and your intentions are good, then some outcome will happen, even if it's not the one that you want. Right. And I think that's key to sometimes be able to say, what did I gain from this? Even if I didn't have the outcome that I wanted, you probably still learned something, gained something along the way. And then how do you use what you gained, even if it's in a different experience or a different environment or in a different way than you intended and to grow from that. And again, that's a lot of what you've been addressing before, which is something negative might be happening on the surface, but you're going to sort of also, it's important to reach for the positive as well. Not to find the things necessarily to be grateful in this, which I think is a little cliche-ish, but to, to still find something positive while while something negative is happening or, or you're thinking about something negative. So... Right. So we don't end up on one end of the spectrum or the other. We either think life is wonderful and everything's perfect or everything's horrible and awful. But to realize that you can have both at the same time. You could have something wonderful happening at the same time something's horrible is happening and that's okay. And I, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think this is all related to like, let's say you feel stressed about something. So this is a, stress is also this, this chemical that's happening in the brain. So cortisol is spiking in your brain. And there's essentially two ways to resolve it is what a lot of these um, ideas are about. One way to resolve it is to say, and this is an odd way to resolve stress, but it does actually reduce cortisol, is to say, well, of course something bad happened. Bad things always happen to me. So actually your stress will go down if you think that, but that won't necessarily improve your life. And another way to resolve the stress is to do what you're saying, like is to kind of reach for something positive and that, that also will turn out to reduce stress because now something positive is happening as well. Yeah, and I think for us to just when we are trying to change our thoughts, it doesn't have to be, I'm going to just think positive when things are that bad. I'm just going to think more realistically. So 
somebody's stuck at a traffic jam rather than thinking, why do these things always have to have to happen to me? This isn't fair. Remind yourself there's millions of cars on the road. It's going to happen that there's going to be traffic jams, and that's okay. I'm so glad you used the traffic jam as a result because uh, uh, I used to use that as a great example, and I I remember I realize now I've not been using that lately, but I would always tell myself in a traffic jam, instead of being like, oh, I'm going to be late or I'm stuck in this traffic jam or I'm bored. I think to myself, I'm in this traffic jam because I'm trying to get into the most amazing city in the world where there's so many things happening and I'm here and I get to experience it and participate in it and so on. So I don't know, again, if that's like too Pollyannish, but that's how I deal with traffic jams. Oh, well, you know, and I think that goes back to not giving away your power to be able to say, you know, I'm not going to blame traffic on on having a bad day or I'm not going to let it ruin my time, but to know, okay, this is a fact of life. If you're going to live in New York, that's going to happen. And and I think there's so many other things that can spin off from this. Don't focus on things that you can't control. So for instance, somebody might write a book and no publisher will accept it. And you can't control if a publisher will like your book or not. You know, there's only like four or five major publishers. Yeah, four or five people might not like your book out of billions of people. But there's still things you can do. A, you wrote a book. Now you have to know I have the skill set. So you can write another book. Or you can look for, well, what are the alternatives out there? And without being brainwashed into what has stigma and what doesn't, you could self-publish your book, for instance. I mean, E.L. James with Fifty Shades of Grey was rejected everywhere and she self-published it initially. And then only later was it picked up and became the biggest bestseller ever, you know, with your book probably as a close number two. So... Um, but I think people don't look at the the choices. One thing they can choose is is cho- having more choices. Yes, I think that's a wonderful example is to be able to say how how do you what, you know what are you going to do if this doesn't work out if this isn't what you planned for then what can you do next? Yeah, and not tie your happiness to that one only right. that one outcome. Um, this one I kind of had to deal. Your next number five I had to deal with today. <laughs> so um, mentally strong people don't worry about pleasing everyone. And I think in our kind of social media intense world, like where every tweet and post and everything is analyzed, you're always going to not please somebody. Yes. In fact, if you please everyone, you're probably doing something wrong. Right. You're going to have to, in order to please some people and reach your target audience, you're going to repel some people and that's okay. Uh, But I think we do live in a world where we want to be polite. We want people to like us. And social media has only amplified that, that idea that I'm only as good as how many likes I get on Facebook or... Yeah, you can really attach self-worth to... Well, I think in general, because we, we're we primates and we live kind of... Uh, we, we're, we're descended from, you know, uh, an initial species that ranked themselves from alpha to omega in every single tribe. I think we always want to apply some metric to uh, uh, determine our happiness. Yes, I think so too. And I think in today's world, social media... Becomes that outlet for a lot of people. Yeah, to know. it totally plays on that pro- genetic thing. Right. Likes and shares and more likes and whatever. Right. And it's tough to say, okay, some people don't like me. In fact, some people are really mean, especially on the internet and on social media, that some people are going to say what you said was stupid and they're going to criticize everything about you. And to know that that's okay and to be able to say, I'm going to keep going anyway. And that takes courage to do that. Well, um, when you when you first came out with this book or the initial article, what were some of the negative things that you had to deal with that you felt this urge? Oh, I got to argue and correct this person, but then you 
held yourself back? When the article came out, it didn't give any of my backstory. It was essentially just a list. So I had tons of people that would say things like, well, you don't know what it's like to go through difficult times. Oh, and that must have like infuriated you. It did. And I wasn't in a place where I wanted to tell people the, the backstory. But at the same time, I was upset that people were saying those types of things. And so that was frustrating. But then when I had other professionals that came out, somebody wrote an article about, it was another um, professional in the psychology industry, about all the things wrong with my article. And I thought, oh dear. <laughs> and so that. What did they say? What, were they, what was one of the things they said was wrong with your article? Uh, you know, so I said, uh, don't dwell on the past. And they would say, well, what does the word dwell actually mean? And they were sort of picking it apart. And I think, in hindsight, I think because my article went viral, they were also looking for their article to go viral as well. And it was published on Psychology Today. And so I thought, have I just ruined my my career in the psychology industry, but it actually led to psychology today giving me a job. And so I now write for them. So it, something good came out of it. But in those early days, it was a matter of thinking, you know, what have I done? And if I anger the wrong people or I have upset people, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to my career? What's going to happen to me personally? How's this all going to play out? Because I never meant for, for this to go viral. So it was an interesting place to be in one of those times where I really had to practice that one myself to know, okay, not everybody's going to like it, and that's okay. I think also it sounds like when this article came out, you were going through such uh, personal tragedy with your father-in-law that maybe that actually in a weird way, uh, because you were devoting so much energy to the to the tragedy, it kind of saved you from, oh, well, now I also have to have enough energy to respond to all these people. Right. You were probably just like, oh, okay, I can't deal with that, and that probably was a good lesson in a weird way. It was to know it's not my job to explain myself. I don't have to go through um, replying to every message I get or telling them all my story. It was just a matter of knowing, okay, people can be angry. I think this was the chapter, and I, I quoted it. Um, you had the quote, you started off with a quote from Lao Tzu. I, mm -hmm. I forget if it was this chapter or, or a later one. What was the quote? Um, something like, if you try to please everyone, you're a, a prisoner to everyone. Right. Something like that. Yeah, it's along those lines. I don't remember the exact words of it yeah. too, but it is because I think, you know, when we try to please other people, it, it can change who we are and it makes you maybe act and do things that aren't in accordance to the way you'd normally do things because you think, I don't want to upset anybody. And that's a dangerous place to be. I think probably this happens in a lot of professions, but let's say as a as a writer, you can, you write lots of things and then, oh, you wrote something that a lot of people suddenly liked and and built that's how that that's how you built up a following or whatever that that metric again right and then suddenly when previously you used to write whatever you wanted to write and you were as authentic as possible now you kind of feel like oh i have to fit this one channel or else people won't like me or they won't recognize this or it won't be as as powerful or i won't get that metric and so i think there's a big challenge to um to think oh i i, I don't have to please everyone with every single thing i do the flip side is, if you're trying to do good in the world, you do have to think, oh, I need to please a lot of people. Right. So how do you balance that? You know, it's a matter of knowing, okay, there's an audience and the whole world isn't necessarily my audience, but to know, okay, that I do have an audience and how do I how do I make sure that I'm giving them what's helpful to them while also being honest? I don't want to just sugarcoat everything and say, read this and feel good about your life. But and that's what led to the second book was people just kept asking me more about kids. And I thought, okay, I can do that. Right. So the, so you felt safe knowing that you can still be authentic and still please a particular audience that you built up. And I think there's there's another 
thing that happens. Like you take take a musician like Bob Dylan, he built up an audience with his kind of acoustic folk music style initially, but then he went electric at one point and his entire audience hated him and he had to deal with that, but he didn't want to stop being the artist he was. And so I think that also is a challenge. It is, it absolutely is to figure out how do I still be me, do what I want to do and know that if, you know, realistically, if nobody likes what you're doing, then you're not going to make money at it. Yeah. So you have to deal with, you have to deal with that. You have to choose that. Right. Um, they don't fear, and this is related to number six, they don't fear taking calculated risks. Yeah, we're so, I think we think that the level of risk and our level of fear is equal. So when something feels scary, we think it's really risky. And we know that that's not true, that anxiety is a strange thing. And when you're anxious about one thing, it carries over into other areas of your life. And not to talk about too many studies, but studies will show that when you, if you're anxious about something in your personal life and then you try to make a professional decision, you'll be more anxious and you'll play it safe. But just, just know, how do my emotions affect my decisions? If you try to negotiate when you're sad, then you aren't going to take as big of a risk because you think I can't handle one more rejection. Or if you're doing something when you're nervous about something else, it's completely unrelated to know I'm not as likely to take a bigger risk because I'm anxious about something else right now and my anxiety plays into that. So it's more about just being aware of your emotions and knowing that life is inherently risky. There's no guarantee, but that our logic gets flawed. We tend to think people are like, oh, I can't ride in an airplane because it's risky. No, driving to the airport is riskier than getting on the plane. But we make up all of these rules in life about what's going to keep us safe and how to, how to stay safe. And a lot of times they're just based on things that aren't even logical. Right. Well, I, we make up these rules often, I think, based on what we've been taught. So for instance, I've seen this in a, a friend recently where he knew he could quit his day job because he had various sources of income that could almost completely replace the income from his day job. But it's scary to quit a nine to five day job because we're always taught, well, that's the safe path. We've been taught that since we were three years old. Right. And even though that might not be the safe path, I I think um, I think uh, Nassim Taleb said, um, the two most addictive things are heroin and a steady paycheck. So kind of a different understanding of risk. Like our, our limited knowledge of, of risk in life might be predetermined by all this whole backstory of things we've been taught and trained in and, how, and that other people believed and projected onto us and so on. Yeah, we develop these set of core beliefs when we're really young and we hold on to the things that we know are true. And then to unlearn it or to open, expand your mind and think, oh, maybe that's not true. That's tough to do. Yeah. All right, number seven, the evil one from psychology today. They don't dwell on the past. Mentally strong people don't dwell on the past. Right. It's helpful to reflect on the past. Obviously, we need to learn from it, but dwelling is about getting stuck. It's when you think, okay, the best years are behind me. Your life was better back then. Or I see so many people that made a mistake and they can't forgive themselves and or they can't forgive somebody else. And they just aren't enjoying life to its fullest anymore. They aren't planning their future because they are somehow thinking if I, I, I don't deserve to, to be happy right now or I'm not going to be as happy in the future. So then they aren't. You know, I, I, um, two, things, two things relate to this. I found that forgiveness often results in my best friends. <laughs> Meaning mm. if I had some problem with somebody or if they had some problem with me, just kind of like, and then we didn't talk for let's say many years, 
kind of, because I was always dwelling on the past, or just kind of working through that often results in much stronger connections than I have with the people who are my friends all along the way, weirdly. So, and then the other thing is, a couple of years ago, I was doing an experiment and I threw out everything I owned, like uh, like um, pretty much 100% except for like one backpack's worth of items. And after 40 years, I had lots of items. After 47 years, I had, I had decades and decades worth of items and, and so much stuff. And people ask me later, oh, it must be so freeing. Like, do you, do you miss anything? And I would respond, of course I miss things. You're, the goal was not to not miss anything. You're missing things sometimes is a pleasure of its own. And I think you could dwell, it's, it's, it's thinking about the past and appreciating it, but again, not saying, oh, I wish I had that back in my life or this person did this to me five years ago. I could never forgive them. Like making a set of rules for now based on what happened in the past sometimes is, is, the, is you want to avoid. Right, and we do. We The conclusions that we draw and sort of the assumptions that we make, and they're not always accurate, but so for example, somebody doesn't get a promotion five years ago, so then they determine, okay, I'm not meant to be a leader. And five years down the road, they don't apply for, for new jobs because they think, I'm not that person. We allow ourselves to to reinforce those beliefs that we have, but to know you don't have to do that. You can create a different sort of life that you want right now. Do you think people can change? Absolutely. I wouldn't be in my field if I didn't have hope that people could could change. I think everyone can change. Like they say, once an addict, always an addict. Do you think that's true? I think somebody who is an addict will probably struggle with that, but they don't always have to be an addict. It will just mean that they probably are always going to be tempted or they may always have problems or may have changed them in a certain way, but I don't think they're necessarily always going to be an addict. Or, or what about something else? Like let's say someone has been, um, I don't know if this is really a, a, a medical term or not, but let's say someone's been very narcissistic in their life. Can they change to be not narcissistic? If they're truly motivated when it comes to something like narcissism, sometimes people want to change on the outside, but they don't really change who they are on the inside. But but you think they can? Absolutely. Um, I think a lot of people think they can. I think that's true. And, you know, again, it depends on somebody's motivation. Anybody who's truly motivated to change, I think can. It's in the Quran. Uh, intention um, precedes action. Right. So if your intention is sincere and and you can probably find your way to action to, to make those changes. Right. And, you know, we're in charge of what we think and what we do and how the choices that we make. So you absolutely can do something different. I'm not a Muslim, by the way. I just know that one <laughs> anecdote from the Quran. Um, they don't, number eight, they don't make the same mistakes over and over. This one can be tough because we, we do something and it didn't work. So there's, you know, the old adage, just get right back up on the horse and try again. But sometimes you need to pause, take a break and think, okay, why didn't that work? Or where did I mess up? And our tendency can be to blame other people and think, well, that person messed up and that's why I'm where I am now, but you got to take responsibility for your share and then learn from it so that you can say, how do I move forward and be wiser than I was? Yeah. And, um, I mean, I think, I think this comes up in several places, but like one is relationships. You, you always hear uh, stories of people who only go for people who are unavailable. That's like a right. cliche type of story in a, in a relationship scenario. Um, but how do you Given that that there are a lot of people who do make the same mistakes over and over, and I've been guilty of this myself in a lot of different ways, how do you? It's one thing to say it. Oh, I'm not going to make that mistake again, 
But there could be really deep reasons why you make the same mistake over and over. And they're very complicated, those reasons. It could be how you're raised or it could be some trauma that you've had in your life or whatever. How do you kind of, do you need to get back to the core to figure it out? Or how do you avoid making the same mistakes over and over? Yeah, sometimes it is about taking a step back and getting to the core. I've worked with people, there was a woman I worked with, for example, who dated drug addicts. And so she'd said, okay, well, I'm not going to go back to the bars to meet people. I'm going to meet people online. But then online, same thing. She attracted drug addicts and ended up dating them. Not just attracted them. She was probably attracted to them. Right. Maybe she was bored of the people who weren't drug addicts. Right. So and so what do you do? So then it was a matter of saying, okay, well, it's not just where you're meeting people or how you're meeting them, but it's a matter of thinking, do you deserve better? Or what's exciting about being attracted to these people? What is it that you're getting out of it? And what would that mean to give it up? And for her, it was a matter of figuring that out of, okay, I like taking care of people. I sort of like this risk and I like this danger. Maybe she's afraid if she doesn't take care of people, then they're going to leave her. Yes. And this is an easy way to be a caretaker, you know, of somebody. Right. And that was definitely a part of it. And for her to sort of draw all of those conclusions to know, okay, it wasn't just the bar that I went to where I kept meeting people. It was deeper than that. And we really had to take that step back and say, well, who are you that, and how could you do something different? And what would that mean if you were in a relationship with a healthier person and somebody that cared for you? And it was really a self-worth issue where she thought, I'm not worthy of being in a healthy relationship and being somebody's partner. Instead, I am comfortable in that caretaker position, which went back to childhood. And, and what'd she do? You know, it took a lot of soul searching and she'd get in these other relationships after a while with healthier people, but it was uncomfortable for her and then she'd sabotage it. Uh, Uncomfortable in what way? You know, she just wasn't used to somebody asking her questions like, what do you need or what can we do? And she was so, and and then it was sort of like this place where she felt more vulnerable that she couldn't always be in control or couldn't be in charge or wasn't always meeting that person's needs. And so we had to figure out how do you sit with that discomfort? How do you say, okay, this is anxiety provoking, but I'm going to do it anyway because this is actually a healthy relationship. Yeah. Or, or would she get bored when she wasn't the caretaker? Right, right. It's not nearly as exciting when you don't have somebody that has all this drama. And so it was a matter of figuring out how do you still meet that need for excitement in your life without sabotaging a healthy relationship. Did she Did she do it? Yeah, you know, after a while, we had to figure out, it took a lot of creativity to figure out how do you create a new life for yourself that still meets all of these needs, but not in an unhealthy way. So it was a matter of saying, okay, you can still go on exciting dates with somebody who's healthy. It might not involve a trip to the ER, but it could still be exciting in another way. You know, why don't you go take a trip somewhere and do something else? And for her... Again, it took a long time for her to come to that point where she could say, yeah, that was really weird. We went away for the weekend and there were no drugs involved or we didn't do anything that was illegal. So for her, that was strange. But after a while, she was able to get more comfortable with that. It's almost like when you want to change your diet, it's not simply a matter of, um, okay, I'm going to stop eating bacon and chips every day. I'm going to eat kale and vegetables. That You could make that decision but it's going to taste horrible for a while. And what happens is the food you eat ends up, part of it ends up being bacteria in your gut and that bacteria is alive and that bacteria has food cravings. So if you, all you eat is chips, you're going to develop this bacteria in your gut that crave chips. And it takes a while, like let's say a few weeks that you grow new bacteria that now craves the kale. And at first, so it's going to just taste horrible your stomach's not going to want it. Your brain's not going to want it because your stomach and your brain are are connected by a lot of neurochemicals. And it's the same thing it sounds like 
in this person's case, she had developed almost this emotional gut bacteria that, oh, I need drug addicts. And she had to kind of get into a bunch of situations to sort of grow new emotional bacteria. Right. And to sit with that discomfort, because at first she thought, you know, this isn't working. If I'm in a healthy relationship and it's uncomfortable, then I must be doing something wrong. But to know that just because she felt uncomfortable didn't mean it was wrong or bad or a mistake. She could just be uncomfortable and that that was okay. She just had to get through it. So, you know, I want I want people to read your book and not just uh, listen to all 13 on this podcast. And then, of course, I want people to read um, the, you know, 13 things mentally strong parents don't do. And I'm a parent, your book's, in, I'm, I have two kids, your, your book's incredibly valuable to parents. So I, I don't, I want people to, to read both. Uh, but I, I want to skip to number 12. Um, I don't know, is this number 12? No, number 11. Uh, they don't fear alone time. And the reason I want to skip to that is because I think I fear alone time. And so I, I find I'm always in something where I don't have to be alone. And how, how do you develop the ability to not fear alone time? And what's the problem with fearing alone time? I, I like to be with people. Yeah, and I think we're social creatures and that's great. We definitely need plenty of people time. But to be alone with your thoughts is a little bit different. And I'll challenge people, just spend 10 minutes alone in a room without the TV, without your cell phone, without anything going on. And for most people, that's really scary. They think, I'll, I'll be bored, I'll, I won't know what to do, or my mind will be racing, or I'll think about uncomfortable things. And to know that that's the place we've come to in the world, where people are terrified to be with their own, alone with their thoughts. And when they did studies on this, they asked women, would you rather meditate for 15 minutes or submit yourself to an electric shock? And 25% of the women opted for the electric shock. But then they asked men, and 75% of men opted for the electric shock that's over funny. just sitting quietly. And you think, yeah, that's the state of our world. I think we're so surrounded by you know social media and text messages and we're always connected and there's so much noise and so many people use the TV, the radio, something for background noise all the time just so well, that they don't have to think. I think, I think though there's kind of um, a persistence of life in the sense that um, if something's happening right now, then it's always going to happen. Yeah. So... For instance, you were going through these tragedies and it's very easy to concoct a story that, oh, anybody I love, I'm going to experience some horrible, tragic loss. And I think it's very easy to think, oh, I'm alone right now. I'm going to always be alone. And I think that's a hard, it's hard to convince yourself that the present isn't the best. Usually the present actually is the best predictor of the future. So it's hard to convince yourself of the times when it might not be. Yeah, and for people to know that being alone doesn't necessarily have to be lonely, but that it's okay to just, even if you just take 10 minutes a day to just unplug, unwind, and say, I'm going to just think. Reflect on how your day went. What are your goals? How'd you do? What, what kind of progress are you making? What do you want to do better tomorrow? And for a lot of people, that's tough. I'm in my therapy office, I have tons of people that come in and say, I can't sleep at night because my mind is racing. And I'll ask them that question, well, how much time do you spend just alone with your thoughts during the day? And... Almost all the time, the answer is, well, none, because we have so much focus on being productive that people always want to be doing something, but to sometimes just taking a step back can be helpful. And if you don't ever give your brain an opportunity to sort of process things, it'll take it whenever it can. So for a lot of people, that's when they lay their head on the pillow, because that's the first time all day long that things are silent. That's really a great point, because I think I'm the type of person that will wake up at 3 a.m. with my thoughts racing. 
And that's usually also the most irrational time of the day. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's not like you're going to solve all your life's problems at three in the morning all of a sudden. Right. And my, I think my one of my daughters, not my younger daughter, gets this from me. She'll wake up at three in the morning and she'll say, she'll even wake me up and say, I can't, I'm thinking I can't sleep. And so I tell her to do the same thing I tell myself, which I find works and it worked for her, which is I say to myself, okay, I'm waking up at three in the morning again. I'm not going to solve my problems right now. It's impossible, but I'm going to make an appointment with myself to think about this exact problem at three in the afternoon. Yes. And I tell her to do the same thing. And a hundred percent of the time, I don't really, the problem wasn't a real problem anyway. At three in the afternoon, I could spend three seconds thinking about it and that's it. Like it's, it wasn't really a problem, but your mind, you know, you're in that kind of half dream, half fantasy state, half nightmare state. Right. And you wake up thinking about these things. And that's a skill we actually use in therapy a lot, which is schedule time to worry. Ah. And so if there's something that you just can't get out of your mind, set a time, put it in your calendar. So from 7 to 7.15 tonight, I'm going to worry about that. And then when it enters your mind throughout the rest of the day, just remind yourself, nope, I'm going to think about that later to sort of free you up so that the rest of the day you can think about other things and know I'm going to devote 15 minutes to thinking about this problem, but that it doesn't encroach in your entire day because how often do we have something going on in the background so even when we're concentrating on something in the background of our mind we're still worried about something else and it's a distractor so to say no i'm going to schedule time to think about that and for a lot of people that really helps so so i'll 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 start to i'll start to close this up uh but i do want to i do want to ask you this a lot of times it's easy to write these things down and particularly while you're experiencing things oh this is how i solved this issue in the past, that's how I have this experience to write this list and then write this book. But when, have, since you've written the book or at least the initial article, when have you found yourself in an incredibly difficult situation where you could take a step back and say, oh, I'm going to apply my own advice and see if it still works for me? Have you had that opportunity? All the time. I think, you know, fortunately, I haven't had any major things since the book came out that have been uh, horrible and awful. Um, But to just remind myself that I'll be okay no matter what. I guess if a more recent example, I live in the Florida Keys, Hurricane Irma came through. And it was a matter of figuring out, well, what's going to happen next? Completely out of my control. I can't stop the storm from coming. I can't prevent damage from happening. It was a matter of just thinking, okay, we'll deal with that when it comes. And I still come by this list, honestly. I still go through the list and remind myself. Like what did you do? uh, You know, it was a matter of figuring out how much news and media do I want to consume? Because... I could sit and watch the news 24-7, but it wasn't going to make it any better. I wasn't going to have any more information on what was going on down there other than what the media was showing. So it was a matter of saying, I'm going to consume a little bit and and then shut it off. I'm going to go do other things. Because- I, I wholeheartedly approve of that. I, I, I've been on a news diet now for about seven years. I don't look at any newspaper or TV news or anything. Not because it doesn't... And people think, oh, well, don't you need to be informed? Actually, it doesn't make you more informed. It might make you less informed because they're trying to grab subscribers so they're going to make they're going to intensify maybe too much so the news and you can often just hear if you just see what's like trending on twitter or you hear a friend overhear people talking story sometimes that's you're going to absorb the events you need to absorb anyway Yes, and I think that that's wise. I mean, studies will show that too, that the more that we consume, you know, the more our anxiety goes up or the more it starts to feel like the entire world is doom and gloom. And when you can shut yourself off from that and remind yourself that they're showing the worst of the worst and that there's plenty of other good things and happy things going on, and those things don't make the news. But when you consume too much of it, it feels like that's the entire world. 
Yeah, like I, I, there was one year where there was a lot of uh, shark attacks, and every day another headline: person loses an arm in a shark attack. <laughs> Turned out that was the least number of out of the past seventy years. That was the least number of reported shark attacks that year. But just whatever reason, I mean, I've worked in newsrooms, and you see the editor kind of set the tone, and, and I could just imagine some editor saying, "Okay, find a shark attack for today, and let's write about it." Right. So as opposed to some other issue they could have written about. Right. And you think, how ridiculous. But when we're watching it, it makes us think, oh my goodness, these sharks are invading and suddenly we're all going to die of a shark attack, right? Yeah. And so to know, how do you shut that off and how do you keep that perspective? And for me, it was a matter of just limiting how much I consumed and knowing it is what it is and I'll deal with it. And what happened? Did your house get destroyed and everything lost? No, we had some damage, but everything um, everything will be fine. Because it was like a Category 2 hurricane, all right? It wasn't a Category 5 or, or 8 that everybody was predicting. Category infinity that everyone was predicting. Yeah, you know, it was bad. Some places got it certainly had lots of damage, and not to minimize that. And I know some people, some lives were lost, but for the most part, I think that we fared much better than they predicted. Did and did you consider evacuating? Yeah, I was not there. I would have been the first one that would be. I wasn't there when they um, evacuated people, but I would have definitely evacuated just on the off chance it was that bad. Yeah, so you you still have to. P- prepare for, you have to take a calculated risk. Right, right. And so, so I would have definitely chosen to evacuate just in case. Yeah, yeah. And um, but I also want to recommend, by the way, so I'm about to recommend all your books, but I, I want to recommend also people listen to your, your TED Talk. I thought it was great. You're funny. Like you started <laughs> off with this thing about, um, you know, you have a Facebook friend whose life seems perfect and it really seems sincere. And it's like they bring a professional photographer with them when they go on vacation and then you kind of like pause a little bit. Does anyone else have a friend like that? And it was just uh, your timing was was funny. It was a very good uh, TED talk. And you kind of, t- then you told your story. Then you talk about, you don't list all the 13 things, but uh, you, you you talk about the process that led to the, the book. And I thought it was a great TED talk. And so did four and a half million other people who, who have watched it. So I encourage people to watch that to kind of get an intro to you after this podcast, of course. But I also think, People have to, it's a must read, 13 things mentally strong people don't do. And then I just want to make sure I get the title right. 13 things mentally strong parents don't do. I wish I had read that one when I first became a parent. I feel like becoming a parent, I mean, not becoming a parent, but over, I have an 18 and a 15 year old. And over these 18 years, I've learned a lot of these things, but through hard trial and error where I wish I could have just read this and at least, you know, mentally went down the checklist. Oh, am I kind of, I think it's important not just to read the book, but to remind yourself of these things. Cause there's that meta skill of it's too easy to fall in the ruts. We always fall in and you have to kind of notice when you're doing it. You have to notice these are habits. These, these things that, uh, these habits that mentally strong people don't do. And you can't just sort of read about breaking a habit and then break it. You have to kind of constantly notice and that's an important skill. But I, th- I think that's why I like these your books as almost checklists to remind myself of. And at the same time, I just want to say the reason why I think these books are so popular and, and the first book has done so well, and it sounds like you corrected it after the article, uh, which I didn't read. I've never, I didn't read the original article. I read the book. Uh, you're a storyteller. And so you start off with your story so people could see right away, oh, Okay, she's been through something, and it's I can relate to it. I have diff- different things that have bad that have happened in my life, and then you tell 
not just your own story, but you draw from stories of hundreds of other people to kind of express each point. And I think that's a really powerful technique, which makes your book great. So th- thank you, Amy Morin, for coming. That's M-O-R-I-N, if anyone wants to Google you. Thank you, Amy, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate well, it. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. It was fun. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you and it will only take 30 seconds or less and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less, and if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.